From Wisconsin Public Radio and PRI, Public Radio International, it's to the best of our knowledge. I'm Jim Fleming. Today we celebrate our national parks. We revel in their glory, from Yosemite and Big Bend to Alaska's great tracts of wilderness. We'll also uncover some nearly lost history, like the Buffalo Soldiers, the African-American cavalry units who helped create America's first parks, and why you really cannot understand this country without coming to grips with our national parks what filmmaker Ken Burns calls America's best idea. They are a treasure house of nature's superlatives. 84 million acres of the most stunning landscapes anyone has ever seen. One of the smartest things we ever did was set those spaces aside as parks. You know, you go back to Europe and there's gorgeous things, but public lands, you gotta get it before the people come. The history of the national parks is full of surprising details. For instance, the first parks were patrolled and protected by the American cavalry, often soldiers who'd fought in the Civil War. It's one of the stories that Ken Burns tells in his PBS series on the national parks. The cavalry was also in charge of the nation's three other national parks, General Grant, Sequoia, and the high country surrounding Yosemite. Each spring, troops stationed at the Presidio in San Francisco would make the two-week, 250-mile ride to the Sierras and patrol the three parks during the summer season. Some of them were African-Americans, the celebrated Buffalo Soldiers of the 9th and 10th Cavalry, who had made a name for themselves in the Indian Wars. Independent producer James Mills watched the Ken Burns series with more than a little interest not only to learn about the Buffalo Soldiers, but it also made him wonder, why do so few African-Americans visit the national parks today? James has this story. The thing about a Ken Burns documentary, he'll blow your mind with what you don't know about your own history. I've been going to Yosemite and Sequoia National Parks since I was a kid. I even led backpacking trips into the northern Sierra Nevada mountains while I was in college. But I never knew that people who look like me, African-Americans, played any role in creating the national parks. Look around. Today you hardly see any black people outdoors hiking or climbing or skiing. Sure, I'd heard of the Buffalo Soldiers, but what did they have to do with Yosemite and Sequoia? I had to get some answers. In San Francisco, there's a historic military base called the Presidio, near the Golden Gate Bridge. Here, the Buffalo Soldiers were stationed the African-American horsemen of the 9th and 10th Cavalry Divisions. Probably a little, a little bit of a smell here. Smell the horses. Frederick Penn is an interpretive ranger for the National Park Service. He's showing me around an old U.S. Cavalry stable. It's now the home of the police department's equestrian unit. Well, the Buffalo Soldiers were recruited at the end of the Civil War. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that there were 100,000 African-Americans in blue Yankee uniforms, more soldiers than the U.S. Army wanted to keep in the uniform and to pay them. You see, after the war, everyone expected the black soldiers would just go back to being farmers or working in factories in the North. But Congress at the time, because it was uh, in the hands of the radical Republicans, which was 
pretty much the party of Lincoln and therefore the party of African Americans. They decided that they should form some units of regular soldiers to volunteer. Most of the Army's white soldiers were deployed in the occupation of the defeated South, so African-American soldiers were sent west, where they fought the Plains Wars against the Native American tribes who gave them their name. When they first encountered the Plains Indians, the Plains Indians had really never seen in mass those many African-American soldiers. And uh, according to the legend of how they got their name, the Native Americans felt like the, the curly hair they had reminded them of the curly hair between the horns of the buffalo and the black faces and also how tenaciously the buffalo soldiers fought them. They fought with the spirit of the buffalo. The buffalo soldiers would go on to fight in the Spanish-American War in Cuba, alongside Teddy Roosevelt and his band of Rough Riders. They were deployed to quell the insurrection in the Philippines. And here's where it gets good. At the turn of the 20th century, they were sent to protect and preserve the newly designated national parks of Yellowstone and Sequoia. And more than 400 Buffalo soldiers made the 14-day journey on horseback from San Francisco to Yosemite, where they actively patrol the park to keep it safe. One summer, I think summer of 1903, they were led by one of the only African-American officers at the time, Captain Charles Young, who was the third black graduate of West Point. And Captain Young, because he was in charge of the 9th Cavalry uh, troops that were there, he ostensibly became the superintendent of Sequoia Kings Canyon. So this was the first time in history that an African-American was superintendent of a national park. Under the command of Charles Young, the Buffalo Soldiers did more for park preservation than all previous cavalry units combined. Their work in Yosemite and Sequoia helped shape some of our first national parks. Yosemite is still one of the most beautiful places on Earth. Each year, millions of people come to see its high granite cliffs, spectacular waterfalls, and lush green meadows. But very few African Americans visit the very park the Buffalo Soldiers helped to create. The same goes for other wild places around the country. How ironic is that? It's doubly ironic to think that a hundred years ago there were more Africans or people of African descent in an official capacity in both Yosemite National Park and Sequoia National Park than there are today. Shelton Johnson is an authority on the history of the Buffalo Soldiers. He's also the only permanent African-American park ranger in Yosemite. You know, Charles Young was the first African-American superintendent of Sequoia National Park during the military period in 1903, and that's not been repeated. There has not yet been another African-American superintendent of Sequoia National Park. And the story of the Buffalo Soldiers is all the more remarkable when you consider the time they lived. Think about how much the world has changed. They were here before there was a Malcolm X, before there was Martin Luther King, before Shirley Chisholm, before all of these people that we know so well. They were here when Jim Crow was Jim Crow. I mean, actually, before to some degree. They were here at a time when race relations were at their most abysmal. The great irony is that relatively few African Americans have gone to our national parks since they were created. Nina Roberts, a professor in the Department of Recreation at San Francisco State University, says many parks actually reinforced practices of legal discrimination. 
people will say, well, there are no signs in front of the parks that prohibit you from going. Now, today we know that to be true. However, the reality is in the 1950s, there were signs that limited where people could go if they could go at all. Picnic area for blacks only. Actually, back in the day, they said Negroes only. Picnic area for whites. The segregation still occurred in parks. Add to that the history of violence by white supremacists and African-Americans tended to stay home. Living memory persists. And today, most blacks avoid national parks and other wild settings. Take the story of Ranger Bill Gwaltney, an assistant to the Western Regional Director of the National Park Service based in Denver. His job is to recruit and train a more diverse park workforce and to encourage people of color to visit the parks. My father grew up in southern Virginia near the North Carolina border in the 1920s and 30s. And when I announced to him my interest in becoming a national park ranger, he immediately had to counter with a story. And the story was that as a kid growing up in South Virginia in an African-American enclave, he had five friends or acquaintances who went missing, who either were found lynched or never found at all. They were close to the Great Dismal Swamp. And he said to me, boy, there are a lot of trees in those woods, and rope is cheap. His first concern was not for whether I was going to be financially taken care of or whether people would treat me okay in the work setting or whether I was going to be halfway across the country. His first concern was for my physical safety. Professor Roberts says these ideas persist even today. Even though people would say, I didn't live during that time, I don't know what that was like, they learn from their elders, they learn from their grandparents, or they've read their stories, and they know and are connected to their history and their heritage. That is huge for us to understand. Take a look at our history. Slavery, post-Civil War racial violence, Jim Crow discrimination, segregation. People say, get over it, get over it. How do you get over what's in your blood? How do you get over the experiences of your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and your great-great-grandparents, the stories that you were told as a child? I mean, racism obviously still exists today, and it, its roots are in that period, that history, that legacy of slavery. Ranger Shelton Johnson believes that African Americans' apparent aversion to nature is a direct consequence of our past. We went from a people who were so bound to the earth in a good way to being bound to the earth in a bad way. We became the most urbanized and urban and urbane group of Africans in the face of the earth. But there's a cost to that. And that cost is that loss of that which was Africa. And so my feeling is, is that Africa is part of the earth and so is America. And so find Africa where you are. Find Africa in the world that's outside you. And so for me, I found Africa in Yellowstone. I found Africa in Yosemite. I found Africa in Great Basin because what I found was the earth itself. And when you're connected to the earth and feel that raw natural environment around you, you close your eyes and the ancestors start to sing. And on this earth resides the enduring spirit of the Buffalo Soldiers, who despite the circumstances of their time stood to fight and defend not only our sacred American land, but the very idea of liberty and justice for all. And so when I see myself wearing this uniform, I'm also making a challenge that people of my culture can also be part of this history. And no, we are part of this history. And that is the, the value of the Buffalo Soldier story, is that it's stating that at the very beginning of this great invention and this great contribution to world culture, which of course is America's best idea, that we were part of it from the very beginning. 
Our story on the Buffalo Soldiers was produced by James Mills, an independent producer based in Madison, Wisconsin. If you'd like to hear more of his work, you'll find a link to his website on our website at ttbook.org. I'm Jim Fleming. It's to the best of our knowledge from Wisconsin Public Radio and PRI, Public Radio International.